Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. My name is Mark Mandel, and I'm very happy to be here today at the early time of 20 past 6 o'clock in the morning. Kai Koenig, my partner in crime, how are you doing today? I'm doing actually fine. You know, I'm in Kansas City at the moment, so for me it's 3.20 in the afternoon, and it's boiling hot here. Well, I'm glad that it's boiling hot where you are because, well, it's six o'clock in the morning for me. <laughs> <laughs> and your dog kept you awake, apparently. Yeah, she did. She's at rescue, so she's got some weird hang-ups and she's just a little stupid. <laughs> but she's lovely. <laughs> so, it's all good, so we'll power through. It'll, it'll, it'll probably cause some interesting moments as my brain starts to wander and do stuff. But, uh, yeah. That will be fine. Nothing unusual with that, probably. Uh, Pretty much not. (laughs) Nothing unusual about that at all. So, in in the sake of tradition, what interesting stuff happened on our day-to-day? Now, today we're actually in two completely different time zones. So, technically, we can pick stuff from, I believe you're on the 12th of July. Yes, I am. Okay, so what happened, interestingly, on the 12th of July for you? So, my favorite is 1962, the Rolling Stones performed their first ever concert at the Marquis Club in London. That's okay, quite that's cool. pretty cool. That's quite cool. Anything else, or is that kind of all you got? No, that's what I got, actually. <laughs> that's what I got? Uh, I, I like mine better, um, just because it is. Uh, <laughs> okay, so 2,111 years ago, Julius Caesar was born, the famous politician from Roman, Roman times. I think that's pretty cool. A famous politician? You could probably also say he was a famous dictator. That's still a politician. It was political. Ooh, yes, sort of. Being 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 a dictator is still political. It just happens to be that he rules with an iron fist, but it's still political. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's, that's okay. Yeah. For the Star Trek fans, Patrick Stewart was born 71 years ago. Or for the X-Men fans. Or for the X-Men fans. Yes, he's still kicking along. 71 years. Pretty good. Yep. So, um, shall I introduce our guest for today? Yeah, we have Very a guest. That's quite cool. Um, to celebrate our 10th episode, actually. Yeah, ten, we've actually managed to do it 10 times, haven't managed to kill each other, still going. Yep. Um, haven't exactly stuck to a schedule, but still, good stuff. So who's so, our guest? Um, who's our guest? For, so for, for those uh, people from more Australia, New Zealand and that area, you may not necessarily know uh, our guest's name, but those in the US I think definitely will. Um, guy by the name of Elliot Spren. Um, I've seen Elliot at conferences and, well, a particular conference actually, and um, spoken to him off and on for quite a few years now, actually, on Instant Messenger. Elliot, why don't you say hello? Hey, it's good to be with you guys today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for coming on, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, No problem. Congratulations on your 10th episode. (laughs) Woo! That was my excited cheer. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on, shall we? What are you doing, Elliot? I mean, why are, what, what were you presenting at the conference you met Mark at? I was presenting on AngularJS and on Jasmine. And it's, uh, it was quite the milestone to be at uh, the conference because it took like five years to actually be at the same conference with Mark. We seem to always miss each other. Yeah, <laughs> so, so why, don't you, why don't you give us a bit of, your, bit of, bit of the, uh, the five-minute resume on Elliot Spren and, and we can continue from there. Um, so... I used to uh, work for a little cold fusion company called TerraTech. I worked there a long time, doing, doing cold fusion for a really long time. And uh, just last year, I moved out to California uh, to work for Google. 
and I started working on the Google Feedback Project. And so my focus has been on the screenshot system and the client that everyone has been talking about in Google+. Uh, it's also on YouTube and a couple other places. So that's pretty much what I do, but I've also been doing ClubFusion for a really long time. I spoke at a bunch of conferences. Uh, the big presentation that everyone uh, seems to remember me from is the one where I talked about how the ClubFusion runtime works, which was a pretty oh, good yeah. presentation to do. That sounds That's pretty cool. Yeah. I've actually played with that feedback system um, just recently when I started to discover Google+, and it's awesomely super cool, to be honest. Thank really you. Impressed. Yeah. So why don't you give us a bit of background on that, that little tiny little send feedback button that does so much in the bottom right-hand corner of Google+. The, um, it's, it's a really cool project, and it's really cool for a number of reasons, one of them being that it, it started as an intern project. It was an intern that was at Google a number of years ago that thought it'd be really cool if users could send feedback to Google because we've always kind of been like a black box, but we felt like that wasn't correct for users, like they should have a way to communicate to us. And it started as an intern project, and they, worked, they built it, and then, of course, they left. And they noticed that it was a really great project. Like, it, it was amazing. And, of course, it's evolved a lot since then. It's really a very different product now. But the same idea has held through, that it should be a way for users to communicate with us. And so it's grown. Uh, there's a large number of people that work on it now. We have an Android client. It's integrated with Chrome. If you go into the wrench in Chrome and under Tools, there's Send Feedback. It's also available in the IE toolbar and a number of other places now, too. So it's, it's grown from um, a tiny little project. It was, used to be a browser extension, actually, uh, to being uh, pretty much everywhere. And so it's, it's been really exciting, uh, particularly launching with uh, Google+, because it's uh, such a big project, and it's so visible with the Send Feedback button. So it's, it's been really exciting for us. And uh, it's also uh, been quite the challenge because while it seems really cool, but it also seems really simple, like, oh, you highlight and you take a screenshot, the effort involved in taking a screenshot and allowing you to highlight has been considerable. It's taken a large number of engineers, um, almost two years, actually, to pull this off. So for those people who haven't, haven't really looked at it, um, it's pretty cool. Basically, if, unless you maybe you don't have a Google Plus in, invitation, which I think pretty much everyone should do at this point in time, um, Basically, there's a button in the bottom right-hand corner that says Send Feedback. So if, you, if there's something you want to turn around to Google and say, hey, this is how it works, you click on the button. It says Mark up the page by clicking and dragging. So you get this sort of gray field that sits on top of the page. You can click Highlight and then just basically draw it on top of this box, on top of what you want to do. Um, and then you can also black out personal information, which I think is really, really cool for privacy concerns. So if somebody's written something that you don't want you know, Google to be able to see, you can then just draw on top of it and just go, okay, well, fair enough, I'll draw a black box on top of that. And so Google doesn't get to see it. You can describe the problem and then hit preview. Um, I haven't described what I'm doing. I'm actually doing it while I'm talking. Hit preview. It actually shows, shows up a page that actually gives you... Um, a preview of it, so you get a screenshot, the description, so they can see exactly what you're seeing, and then hit send feedback to Google, which is, I think, is just just bloody pretty damn amazing, really. <laughs> I think that's really really cool. It is, and, and it makes it even more interesting because it's pretty much built with you know standard browser technologies, without any external plugin like Flash, for example. Uh, yes, there's no uh, plugins used. We do use Flash uh, to replace Canvas in certain older browsers that don't support it, which at this point is really only IE8. Yeah. Um, 
every other browser has Canvas support. So that was one of the things that we really wanted to do. Early on, we originally had browser extensions, and it was very apparent that trying to get users to install browser extensions to support to send feedback to Google was just not a viable solution because they have to install the browser extension, they have to update the browser extension. Not every browser has automated updating. Trying to get a good user experience out of a browser extension for everyone is a challenge. And we decided that that wasn't going to work. And so we came up with this other solution, which is entirely client-side. Uh, it's all written in JavaScript, and it takes the screenshot and sends it to us. So when you, when you started working on this feature, HTML5 and even you know like advanced... JavaScript development was probably in the early days. I mean, really early days. HTML5 is still sort of in its early days from my point of view. How, how much of a challenge was it to get such an undertaking up and running with the technology at that time? It was certainly a challenge. A lot of what we depend on is not actually HTML5 specific. It's stuff that's been in browsers a really long time. So it didn't depend so much on the fact that HTML5 was around. There are certain things that we do depend on uh, to get really good performance, things like the Canvas features. Um, modern Canvas supports a bunch of things, rendering text, things like that, that have been really beneficial. Uh, Post-message, being able to communicate between different windows. So it's certainly been a challenge. It's also been an adventure in discovering browser bugs. Um, hmm. So that's, that's actually really interesting. I mean, I did a lot of web development before. I worked with the HTML5 committee, and I knew a lot about CSS bugs, and I knew a lot about just general browser bugs. But I'd never come across essentially like general, like weird DOM bugs related to things like the way Canvas works or the way PostMessage works before uh, until I worked on this project. So you didn't manage to go completely insane trying to deal with multiple browser versions and stuff like that? It's certainly been a challenge. We did, uh, at some point, support a very large number of browsers, and as we've slowly removed uh, very old browsers from the list of supported browsers. Uh, as we move forward, uh, Google only supports, I believe, the top some N version of browsers right now. There's a public announcement about it. And that's helped us a lot uh, to cut out some of, essentially, the workarounds we had for like extremely old browsers, like Firefox 3. Uh, which yep. has just really crazy broken things like all over the place. And Firefox has come so far. Like Firefox 4 is great, uh, Firefox 5 is great, uh, but Firefox 3 is like so incredibly old and trying to support that is like trying to take screenshots in IE6. Like there's just so many big challenges. Um, so we have uh, a different user experience for that. If you try activating a Firefox and old uh, feedback in older browsers, you'll see there's a different flow for sending us feedback. We still want your feedback, but we don't walk you through the screenshot steps because it provides a really poor user experience because it's just really slow. Do you actually like have a little message that displays sort of like, hey, by the way, you're using an older browser, you might want to upgrade? Or do you ignore that completely? Or even, even a, there's a better feedback experience out there if you were just, you know, not too lazy to upgrade. <laughs> we haven't tried to put any messages in yet uh, because there are certain modern browsers, really, that uh, have similar issues. And so at this point, we don't want to discourage users or prompt them to switch browsers because there are certain modern browsers that should support feedback, but we haven't gotten around to doing it yet. And we want to support okay. all the browsers. So it's, it's not in our... Um, we, do, we don't want to tell users to switch browsers because there's users using modern browsers that are fine that we just haven't gotten around to supporting yet. Fair enough. That all sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's a quite good move, I think, to cut support for certain old browsers. It's the only thing you can do, really, if you want to stay sane. At, at, you know, to say, well, you know, maybe Netscape 4 and IE6 and maybe even IE7. Well, you get, you know, we, it work, the basic functionality works, but you won't have the greatest user experience. And that's what I'm trying to tell clients as well. 
you know, if you want to make it, want to make everything IE6 compatible, yes, it's maybe possible, but the amount of time and money you spend, I'm not sure if it's really worth it. Well, I think then when you start looking at, um, you start looking at your browser stats and saying, okay, how much percentage of this is my current market? And then go, okay, well, is it worth my time and effort to support this platform if, you know, if it's 10% or 2% or 1%? Um, the, the tricky, so it's, the, yeah, the tricky bit is, though, that depending on your geographical market, you end up mm. having a lot of people using IE6 still. Um, and particularly when you look at, let's say, you know, develop or, you know, rather de- developing countries like, you know, um, second or third world countries, basically, you find mm. a lot of people using IE6, basically. In yeah, which case you may have to support depend. it. Yeah. Depending on your, uh, your application. Yeah, because I mean, which the, it sucks. But yeah, a lot of people in those in those places use you know go to internet cafes to go online and to do stuff, and then those internet cafes run on whatever Windows ME or Windows XP or something like that, basically. Yep. And I mean, seriously, that's that's mm. is, that's just the reality. And um, what do you do? I mean, if you want to have those people on your side, that market, basically, you need to support it in some way. Unfortunately, that's fair. Yeah. The uh, and the project really probably wouldn't have been possible without Google's infrastructure, because there's a large automated testing infrastructure that allows us to test in a large number of browsers simultaneously. There's big clusters of machines, and that's really benefited us because trying to generate uh, screenshots, it's essentially a browser inside of a browser, and so we have big sets of golden screenshots and essentially all the tests that you would see for a real a real browser. Like if you look through the test suite that you see for WebKit rendering, it's all about uh, here's an HTML page, this is what it should render like, and uh, here's, here's what it should look like. And there's all these pixel tests and automated tests that they run. And we essentially have our own suite uh, that we run against our system. And without their infrastructure, this would have just been an incredible undertaking because to try to test on so many different websites and so many different things and so many different features uh, manually, of course, would have just been crazy. Yeah. So basically you're telling me you have a browser inside a browser? Yes, that, that is what we have. <laughs> <laughs> so you basically sat down and went, okay, we need to write a browser in JavaScript because, you know, that doesn't seem like an easy thing to do. Let's do that. And that's, that's how you're capturing all your screenshots. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> wonderful, 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 yeah. wonderful. Yes, it's, it's been quite an adventure. Um, the team that originally started it was located uh, overseas in a, a different Google office. And when I came on, um, they had actually not done a lot of JavaScript development before, and they had done just really impressive things for people that uh, had never done JavaScript, which was kind of cool, actually, because uh, they could think outside the box. So there were things where I was like, oh, man, I don't know if that would work. Like, that, should be, that feels like it should be really slow. And they were like, we have no idea what we're doing. And so they did really incredible <laughs> things. Uh, <laughs> so... It's, uh, it's been kind of cool. And then I came in um, from kind of a standards perspective where I knew HTML5 and CSS really well. And so I was able to essentially help uh, re-architect it and work with the other team members to get to the point where we have like the really incredible screenshots we have now. But um, it, it wouldn't be fair for me to not just call out the people um, in uh, the office, uh, the Krakow office, uh, who just did incredible work on this. Uh, because they, they really brought it to the point where we could say, like, oh, this is a great solution. Like, we can definitely do this. And then yep. we, um, we help them bring it to the point where it is now. Brilliant. Yeah. That's really, really, really cool. Elliot, can you talk about what happens 
with the feedback you're getting from users? I mean, how is it presented internally to certain business groups or product owners at Google? Internally, we process the information in aggregate. There, um, the feedback is uh, read by real people, and everything that you send is actually read. We, we look at everyone's feedback. Uh, certainly, the volume is extremely high. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it's not just on Plus. It's actually, if you don't have a Plus account, you can go to the bottom of YouTube, and there's a report of bug link. It's also uh-huh. on Cosmic Panda, which I believe is the one of the experiments that YouTube is running right now. If you go to the bottom of YouTube, you can opt in. Um, there's a big blue button. So we're in a lot of places. The volume is really high. And so we have a system that works by looking at feedback reports and finding similar reports and gluing them together. And that allows us to process the very large volume because it would look at a report that Mark submitted Uh and a report that somebody else submitted and say, oh, you're talking about the same thing based on annotations and based on what you said and what page you were on. And so we present essentially these aggregate groupings of all the reports. And that, uh, that's what allows us to that's deal with the volume cool. because it's uh, it, certainly like if he's generated actual bug tickets per report, uh, it would just be incredible. Like I, I, um, the numbers are confidential, but the numbers are just incredible like across all of the products. And so it's something that uh, needs to be more sophisticated than just generating an email or uh, filing a bug ticket right away. Cool. Okay. That's very interesting, yeah. So let's let's take a step back for a sec because it's kind of news that we haven't really talked about the fact that Google Plus is now available and it's out there and um, I think it spread pretty much like wildfire through the Confusion community as soon as it as soon as it came up and and uh, I'm guessing Elliot you've probably been using it internally for Google for a while um, but what do we what do we love about it what do we hate about it Kai have you been you've been using it or have you have you been using still Twitter and Facebook or well I mean so obviously we need to maybe. St- do another step back and talk about how I got introduced to, to Google+, Plus, which was through you, basically. So Mark sent me an invoice, <laughs> of, I don't know, two weeks ago or something like that. And I got the invoice, I thought, what the hell is this again? You know, another whatever service <laughs> I, I have no time or no, no interest in using, basically. So I had, I clicked, yeah, yeah, set me up, do all that stuff, basically, and then ignored it. And at one stage, basically, I just picked Mark and said, hey, could you explain me what Google Plus actually is and what I can do with it, basically. And I, I should probably also point out that your wife throughout this whole time was like, can you give me an invite? Can you give me an invite? Can you give me an invite? And I'm like, Kai's on there. Why don't you get him to do it? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's a totally different story. <laughs> and then I tried to call Mark on Skype and get into a conversation with him to get him to explain me Google Plus, and he just hung up on me constantly. <laughs> and said, like, oh, no, come on, Google Plus. Skype is boring. Skype is boring. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to use Google Plus Hangouts because they're cool. No, I have to agree. They are cool. You know, Google, from my point of view, Google Plus has a few cool things, like the Hangouts, for example. I personally don't see much value in, for example, watching a YouTube video together. Um, but that's, you know, my personal point of view. But the Hangout feature itself is quite cool. I would love it to have sort of um, a screen sharing or yeah. presentation add-on or yep. mode. That would be really, really cool because then Google Plus Hangout could actually replace a few other things I, I use regularly. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, obviously the sharing aspect is quite interesting as well. I'm not quite sure yet in which way I'm going to use it, to be honest. Because, I mean, I've got a huge community mm. on Twitter. And yeah, exactly. I've got, you know, a huge amount of stuff on Twitter, like 
tweets, you know, which I, I just don't, I, I'm not really keen on just leaving Twitter. And the way how I use Twitter and Facebook is basically Twitter is sort of community and work and also some, you know, real life friends, basically. And Facebook is more real life friends and not that more much. Social. Yeah, more social and not that much Adobe community. And on Facebook, I've got a lot of, you know, non-geeky friends and, you know, my yeah. mom and, you know, stuff like that, mm. basically. <laughs> and, you know, like, it would be it would be sort of nice to be able to hook Google Plus into Facebook and Twitter or, you know, have TweetDeck, for example, support Google Plus or something like that, that I could aggregate all those social feeds. I can't see myself moving over to Google Plus from Facebook or Twitter at this stage. But, you know, you, know, you never know what the future is going to, going to bring. Yeah, yeah it's... it's- Go on. You want to you speak, Elliot? Go for it. Yeah. Um, I, I'd actually disagree about the YouTube videos. Uh, I have uh, a lot of friends that are – I used to work for a company called DeviantArt. Uh, they're a big online art community. Mm-hmm. And yep. they're mostly volunteer-operated, and the people are distributed everywhere. And so you end up with friends kind of all around the world. And I, I learned early on when you have friends all around the world, you still want to do things together. We used to have uh, big Skype meetups, and there used to be a bug in Skype that allowed you to just continually chain calls. And we got up to, I think, 20 people in a call once a long time ago. I think they fixed the bug since then. But uh, you learn to do things through video uh, like that. And one of the things that I've done with friends before, uh, I have friends that still live all over, is sometimes you do uh, just want to watch a movie together or you want to watch a YouTube video together. Or uh, I have a, a good friend and her sister was having a really bad day. And she was like, oh, but they live on opposite sides of the country now. But they wanted to spend some time together. And they were like, well, we should watch a movie. And so what did they do? Well, they both turned on Skype, and they turned their laptops so that they could see each other, and then you try to synchronize the movie, and you're like, okay, so where are you in the movie? Uh, I'm at like two minutes and ten seconds. So saying you count one, two, three, and hit play at the same time. And it lets you both watch the movie at the same time, and you can talk through uh, chat like, oh, this is really funny. And it lets you kind of have a social experience with people that you'd otherwise have been disconnected from. Um, More of like a a real example besides just people being friends. Uh, There's soldiers overseas, there's people that are traveling, and just being able to do things together I think would be really nice. I know people who like being able to watch like a a YouTube video or a movie with your kids when you're traveling around would be a big deal for them. So while it doesn't address, I think, everybody's use case, I know that I've certainly used it. I know other people that do use that same thing too. Yeah, yeah I, I, used... I can see that. That, ma- that makes sense to me. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think it's a useless feature. I'm just thinking, for me personally, watching YouTube videos with other people is probably not what I would want to do. Watching a movie, though, that is a different story, sort of. <laughs> you know, if you say, well, you know, I'm catching up with some friends back in Germany or something, and we would watch a movie online together in through a Google Hangout, that would be quite cool, for example. I can, I can see that working totally, yeah. And sure, I mean, it's a really great way to show people Rick Astley videos, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which Whatever I may have potentially about done to about four or five different people as soon as Hangouts came out, and I went, oh, this is a great avenue to Rickroll people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But we use Hangouts at work. Like if we're having a team meeting and stuff, we just um, we throw it up on there and it works really well, uh, especially because we're all kind of all over the shop as well. So that's that's been really good fun. Um, I really like with Google+, Plus, um, definitely seeing some crossover between content, but also I think I'm seeing people who, because we've 
got the geek community essentially on on Google Plus, where people want to actually have a decent discussion about something random. I mean, it may not even be something necessarily tech related, but they want to sort of discuss it with all their geek friends. You can't really do that in tweets in 140 characters. It's really kind of frustrating sometimes. Um, and Facebook may not necessarily be the right platform. So Google Plus is definitely coming to its own there because you know you can put comments on things. Um, you're not limited by, you know, 140 characters or anything like that. And you can have a nice threaded conversation and it works really, really well that way. Um, I think that's really, really, really nice. Um, I also really like the fact that you've basically, no matter where you are in the Google ecosystem now, you can see all your notifications for Google+. Plus. Yeah, that is true. So it doesn't, yeah, uh-huh. which, is, which is really nice. So if I'm looking at my Gmail and, you know, something comes through, I'll be like, oh, there's a little red box up in the right-hand corner. I can click it. I can actually interact with it, which is really nice as well. I love the notification panel. So I can pretty much do everything if, you know, if I've got a notification and I've somebody's written a comment, I can write a comment back through the notification panel without ever leaving Gmail or Google Docs or anything like that. So it's pretty, it's pretty neat. I actually quite like it as a platform. Um, but there are different times where I'll, I'll post stuff to Twitter and then Facebook and then Google Plus all at the same go um, just because it sort of fits in a bunch of different areas. But yeah, I really like Google Plus. I'm becoming more and more of a Google fanboy. <laughs> so yeah, I've really enjoyed using it as kind of like a middle ground between like Twitter and like a Facebook or something like that uh, because it seems to move uh, really fast. It, it feels a lot like Twitter to me, but if the tweets were longer. And I think that's really where the potential for what I use. Like, uh, if anyone's noticed, I post on Twitter pretty infrequently, probably more in the past week than I ever have before. Uh, Tim Cunningham used to like retweet me every time I said anything and be like, holy crap, it's been like six months. Uh, <laughs> uh, Google Plus has helped a lot uh, for that for me because, first off, it's everywhere. Like, I live in Gmail all day long and it shows up right away. Uh, but also, it just being able to post meaningful things and have this kind of concept of, uh, the, like the, the list of tweets, but them be a little more substantial has been really nice. Like Twitter's always felt really frustrating to me because I always want to say just a little more than 140 characters, um, and it, yep. it just it never meshed with like what I wanted to say. So how how do you think people? How do you think the behavior of people will change when it comes to you know Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus? Because for me, it's really at this stage painful to operate three different services, to be honest. And, you know, in the long run, if Google Plus was going to be successful for me personally as a platform where I want to be, I'm very sure that either Twitter or Facebook would have to give, basically, and will have to go finally, pretty much. I will still be, stay on it, but, you know, not use it regular, regularly anymore. Is that something you guys see happening across the board, that people will move off one of their, you know, current platforms over to Google Plus? Or do you think there will be sort of, you know, like, there will services come up that mesh them all together and, you know, you post once and it distributes it to all your social streams, basically? That's an interesting question. Um, um, I, I don't know if you'd want to post to all three of them at the same time. Like Twitter, it seems to serve such a different use case uh, than both Facebook and Google Plus uh, because the tweets are so short. And it moves uh, incredibly fast. I know I tweet maybe once an hour uh, now. Uh, I know people that tweet what seems like once a minute. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> uh, 
but it's uh, it seems like a very different ecosystem. And even uh, Facebook, uh, other communities that exist, uh, I think they serve lots of different purposes. And I, I think that there is room for people to use all of them. I know my friends still post to all three. So I, I think that there is just a, it's a, it's a very different feel. Like Google Plus doesn't feel like anything else that I've used. Just like Twitter doesn't really feel like anything else. Like Facebook certainly doesn't feel like Twitter. So I think that there is just room for everything. Mark, what I do think you think? Yeah, I know. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, Elliot. I hear what you're saying, um, Kai, as well. I've definitely posted to all three. I think primarily when uh, talking about CF Objective A and Z. Um, if I'm promoting stuff for, for the conference, um, which we should talk about as a segue, but we'll get back to that. Um, then, yeah, I've definitely posted to Twitter and then to Google Plus and then to, and then to Facebook, like the, the Facebook CF Objective ANZ page. Um, and there are other small things that I've definitely posted. Sometimes I think there's probably more of a share uh, between maybe Google Plus and Facebook because I know I can keep certain things private. Um, and that's worked. That's worked really well if I'm posting more social sort of things. I think if anything was going to go, I think it would probably be Facebook. I, I mean, it's got, I mean, look, the time, at this point in time, Twitter and Facebook have just got huge market penetration that is going to be super hard to budge. Um, but I think the quick fire nature of Twitter and its sort of 120, 140 characters thing um, probably doesn't, probably won't move just because it's got that it's got that sort of uh, very quick reaction very sort of um, quick re- return on investment sort of thing when you send something out that I don't think will probably compete in this space with Google Plus but I could see I could see if people particularly things around privacy concerns for example I think the circles metaphor for Google Plus is fantastic I think that's just it's just hit the nail on the head brilliantly in terms of um, being able to control the privacy of what you post and who can see it, I think that is absolutely awesome. And just the simplicity of it as a concept is great. I mean, even to the point where the other day I was like, oh, I need to send someone a direct message. How do I do that on here? And then I went, wait a minute, I don't actually need to send them a direct message. All I need to do is post something and just share it with that particular person. And that's it. That's all I need to do. And that's just, you know, it sort of takes care of itself with that circles metaphor, which is just, I just think that's, actually, actually I think that's a stroke of genius. I think it's brilliant. Um, and it's so intuitive to control where things are going. Um, and as we all know, Facebook really has had privacy concerns for a long time. Um, so if anyone was going to move, I think, I think that's probably where people would end up moving. But yeah, the market penetration on Facebook is insane. And unless all your friends move across, you know, you're probably not going to as well. So it's sort of a chicken and egg scenario. So it should be interesting to watch the space. Yeah, I mean, so far for me at least, um, most of my um, friends on Google Plus are techie people. So it definitely hasn't really reached into the non-geek community of friends I have so far. And that might be because it's new. But, you know, from experience with Facebook and Twitter, that it takes a while anyway for, you know, people who are not in that tech geek community to adopt that stuff. I mean, I have now people um, who start using Twitter who don't work in IT or don't, you know, do all that geeky stuff, basically. And it's like, well, you know, I'm on Twitter for four and a half years now, and you start in 2011? Ooh, that's quite late. (laughs) But, you know, that's just what it is, basically. You know, for for a lot of non-geeky people, the adoption is quite long, basically, of a new platform or new technology. I've got non-geeky friends on Google+. Really? Um, Okay. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got one cousin of mine, a couple of cousins of mine, though one of which is he doesn't work in tech, but he's he's a little bit gadgety. Uh, a couple of other people, I've got a friend of mine in Atlanta. 
um, who is definitely not a tech head. <laughs> okay. It's, I sent I sent an invite to my mum. <laughs> How did um, that go? Well, she didn't take it. She was like, nah, I don't know what this thing is. And uh, I had a look and I don't know. But I figured I should do that, you know, just in case she started complaining. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like Kai's wife, apparently? Apparently, yeah. Well, yeah, pretty much. I just get, I was getting direct messages from her like every hour. Like, Did you the invites back yet? Are invites back on yet? Are invites back on yet? Come on, I really want to get on there. And I'm like, your, your husband's on there. Why, why, I, I didn't even have invites, actually. You know, it took me, I just got a few invites last week, basically. And then, you know, then she was on it already at that time. Which is really funny. So. I know I have uh, old high school friends that have added me, and I have uh, some family on there now. Uh, I know that the uh, the invites are rolling out, so uh, I, I don't know how exactly, because I, I don't work with that team specifically, but I know that uh, just yesterday I had a bunch of high school friends add me. And I also, uh, the Cold Fusion group actually has been by far the largest one. My Cold yeah. Fusion circle is gigantic, so yeah. they seem to have uh, joined really, really quickly. It's not just... Cold Fusion. It's basically I've got a, a circle called Adobe Community, and that's massive. <laughs> so do I. Uh, <laughs> How big is your Adobe Community circle? Now I'm uh, curious. I don't know. I would have to have a look. Hang on. Um, you don't have Google Plus open right now? No, I don't. I'm very sorry. I have 156 in my Adobe Community. You're significantly more popular than I am. So let me ask you a. Oh, here I'm we go. Curious. Um, 81. But you know more flex people. 81. Okay. Yeah. There we go. I have more people in my Adobe community. I have, I have, um, now, okay, interesting question. What circles do you have? I have friends. I have family. I have Adobe community. I have one for CF Objective ANZ. I have one called Random Network, which is basically people I know through work and general stuff that I can't think of. <laughs> that I don't know which box they're going to. I've got one for work, and I've got one for guys that I train martial arts with who actually aren't online, but if they ever do come online, then they're there. At least you have a circle prepared for them. Awesome. I have, it's prepared. It's ready. Yeah. It's ready to go. I've got um, friends, which is people who I know online or offline. Um, yep. Then family... Uh, where there's just my wife in there at the moment, basically. Acquaintances, which was a default one. I left it on for people who I know, you know, from online, but who I wouldn't categorize as friends, really. Then yep. I've got following, which was a default one. I ha there's nothing in there. I haven't deleted it. Adobe Community. Then I have Aussies. I have NZ. I have Germany. I have Wellington. And I have real-life friends. So some real geographical stuff. What have you got, Elliot? Come on, share your circles. <laughs> I have uh, friends, uh, family. I did keep the acquaintances one. I also have a work circle uh, for Google. And I have a cold fusion circle. I only have 70 people in it, so I, apparently I'm not nearly as popular as Mark. Uh, and then I have uh, a follow-up circle because we've been trying to uh, follow up with uh, people who've had issues with feedback. Uh, and so a, a lot of uh, essentially what I've done is I, you add people that I want to essentially be like, oh, you had an issue, and then I can broadcast to all of them and be like, oh, I fixed this. Or, oh, maybe you should try again because we rolled out an update today. And that's one of the things I found uh, has been kind of nice is it's so nice. quick to like add just a couple people. Like, oh, I want to respond to these five people later, and I can go in and like chuck them in a circle and like forget yeah. about it. And then like a week later, I can be like, oh, yeah, I want to tell those five people that I just fixed their problem. Very nice. That's a very good idea, yeah. Very, very nice. Okay. Well, all right, let's, let's skip topics for a sec. I think we've, we've hopefully 
delve deep enough into the Google Plus and, and skip products because we should probably talk about this very very quickly or at the very least. Um, give a, a congratulations shout out to uh, Rakshith N, who is our new Cold Fusion product manager. Woo-hoo. Less relevant. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. She's great. There's actually a, uh, a Cold Fusion product manager and a Cold Fusion marketing manager as well. So that's wow. that's pretty great. So we've actually fulfilled those roles. And Rakshith's, uh, I, I assume most people may or may not know Rakshith. Um, Rakshith's been a computer scientist at Adobe Systems for a while. He's been working on the Confusion product for ages. Um, for anyone who's been to the WebDU conference, he's come and presented there before as well. Uh, so quite a few people probably have met him uh, in the ANZ region, which is great. Um, so, yeah, big thumbs up and uh, congratulations to Rakshith and welcome to, welcome to the rest of us bugging you a hell of a lot more. <laughs> yep, I totally agree. So he will get like swamped with emails and messages from now on probably yep yep so Rick Sheath, where's my uh, speaking opportunity at max you know things like that um you know, why is cold fusion not work all that sort of fun stuff he's going yeah. to that mark is describing all of the emails that he's going to send <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's got a prepared list of all the stuff that accumulated over the last few months without an official product manager basically and now he's firing them off <laughs> yep, yep. So, uh, yep, here's another open source project I wrote. Please go take it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> things like that. Yep. Now, that, that's great. I mean, and, and it's quite recent news, right? I mean, it was announced like last night. Last night, basically. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm really, yeah. really happy that they found someone. Really, really, really happy. So, yeah, very, very, very cool. Um, okay, so. The other so thing Google, I wanted to yeah, talk about. Google Plus and the new Cold Fusion product manager, those two items were really the news of you know of the show. And now we yep. sort of get into the real topic at the end of the day, basically. <laughs> after thirty seven <laughs> well, minutes. I wanted yeah, I wanted to talk about Google Plus and the feedback stuff because I thought yeah. that was really cool. Yeah, We've, we we very, very lightly touched on the next topic. Yeah. Um going through. Um so I for a bit of background, when I was in uh, a in Minneapolis for CF Objective uh, earlier this year, I think actually one of the, the highlights, the presentations that um, for the conference for me for sure was uh, Elliot's uh, JavaScript unit testing talk. I thought it was really good stuff. I really enjoyed it, Elliot. Um, and definitely changed my mind. Well, I don't know about changed my mind, but opened my eyes is probably a better word to um, the world of writing JavaScript and, and I don't want to use the word the way to do it right, but I almost do as well. And realizing kind of that, and while that may, but those sort of words kind of right and wrong tend to upset people, but maybe how to do it better is a better way of doing it. And um, so Elliot, do you want to give us a bit of, a bit of synopsis and, and the, the 5,000 foot version of, of what we're talking about there? Uh, so the 5,000 foot version uh, the presentation that I did was on essentially changing the perspective we have on how you write JavaScript code. Because before I came to Google, I used to think of JavaScript as kind of this thing that ran on the client that required a browser and was really hard to test. And so you'd have your server-side unit tests, and you might have these big Selenium tests that would spin up your whole server and click a bunch of buttons. But there was never really any thought of trying to unit test the JavaScript, uh, at least not very effectively. Like, I'd seen people use uh, QUnit or things like that, but nothing like n- nothing really serious. And when I got here and you think about big products like Gmail or you think about something even like feedback, which is very complicated, uh, not having unit tests was just crazy. And so uh, that's one thing I learned here. And it's been really great because they're so serious about it. Uh, 
I, I don't know if anyone else has used uh, has, has tried to do testing by themselves when they're working with a team that doesn't like to do testing, but it's like pulling teeth. Uh, so coming to a company where they were so serious about testing and having everyone around me be like, oh, did you write unit tests for your JavaScript yet? Uh, has been like really eye-opening to me because it's, it's made me a much better developer because now I don't write JavaScript without thinking about, oh, can I even test this? So I think I think you need to reiterate that Wild West story that you had in your presentation because oh. I love the term and it actually really <laughs> resonated with me. Um, I have to say, the the story I was telling is um, how uh, once upon a time JavaScript was really hard, and then we got this framework called jQuery, uh, which is great. And with jQuery, uh, you can just crank out something really fast, but it's it's like the Wild West because you sit there and you go like, oh well, I want to click on this. I want to do something with this button when something a click happens, and then I want to do an XHR request, and then I want to format the data a little bit, and then I want to generate a string, and then I'm going to throw it into the DOM, and then I'm going to attach a listener and do an animation. And if you look at the jQuery code, it's like these nested callbacks and these functions, and there's dollar signs everywhere, and, and it works. But then you're like, oh, can I test this? Uh, and the answer is probably not, uh, because you just kind of like throw out JavaScript like it's crazy, and it feels like you're really productive, but I... Looking back, I feel like I was productive, but it was also like it, it, it was the Wild West. Like you were just running around, like throwing code everywhere. And you'd never do that on the server. Like if you were writing cold fusion code, presumably you're writing unit tests. Like you don't just throw out a thousand lines of code and go, I hope it works and cross your fingers. Uh, but it felt like that's what I was doing in jQuery. Like I would just throw out tons and tons of code and I'd cross my fingers and I'd refresh it in every browser and I'd click on the button and I'd go, hey, hey, look, it does animate. Um, and looking back at uh, unit testing now, like in JavaScript, like it, it feels like I'm not walking around the Wild West anymore. Like I actually feel like there's more method to what I'm writing. I, I can definitely definitely relate to what you're saying. I mean, I'm writing jQuery code a lot at the moment. And when I look at the code we produce, it feels a bit like, you know, ActionScript 1 back in the day. You have like, where you had like a Flash movie and you attached some script to some things in your Flash movie to, to achieve something. And that's pretty much the same way quite often jQuery is done. You've got your DOM, you attach something to a DOM element, and it does exactly what you said. You know, it's doing its thing, but testable? Not at all. The, the question is then, how would you need to structure your JavaScript application or your jQuery application in the first place to you know, support even something like unit testing? Uh, so the biggest thing that I stressed in my presentation is just not touching the DOM inside of code that deals with uh, the actual logic. So the, it turns out that the slowest thing inside of the browser, uh, except for talking to the network, is the DOM. And it's also the hardest thing to mock out. Because if you're going to write a test, you really need to mock out the kind of big heavyweight pieces. So when you're writing unit tests for the server, you'd mock out, say, the file system and the network. Because they're both really slow, and it's not something you want to do in a test. Mm -hmm. So if you're writing JavaScript tests, you want to mock out the DOM. And you want to also mock out uh, network communication. And so the first thing you want to do is structure your code in such a way that everything that touches the DOM that would do, say, animations and things that are really hard to test is centralized in one place. And all the actual logic that has to do with formatting your data, making network requests, and all of this is somewhere else. And then make sure that you abstract away the XHRs so that when you're writing tests, you can make your tests uh, predictable and not actually have to talk to a server. And that just goes a really long way, because now you can run your tests actually not inside of a browser. You could run them inside of Node.js. You could use JSTD, um, which is a test running framework. And that just really goes a long way. 
So to, to actually, it's an interesting question you asked there. I mean, so if, if you're writing unit tests for JavaScript, how do you run them? Like, especially if you're using something like Jenkins or a continuous integration server, is there some sort of like sort of JavaScript library that actually fires up and, and runs it so you don't actually fire up a browser? Is that how that works? Or how does that, that generally kind of come together? There are uh, frameworks for Node.js now, and I believe there's some for Rhino. Uh, Rhino is the JavaScript engine uh, for uh, Java that was uh, built by the Mozilla Foundation. And uh, Node.js, for anyone who's living under a rock, I guess, is the V8 engine. Um, and there are frameworks for them uh, that don't run inside of a browser. Uh, in general, I I've seen reasonable success with that. Uh, here we use a framework called uh, JSTD, uh, JavaScript Test Driver. And we also use... Uh, WebDriver uh, for some tests. And the way that it works is you it starts up a server, which uh, is completely headless, and then you open up browser windows, and they get captured by the server. And the server essentially just has a long-running request with that one browser window, and it streams across your JavaScript. And the benefit okay. of this uh, has to do with a lot of times there's things you don't necessarily want to mock out, things that have to do with APIs in the browser that are synchronous so it makes sense to test them, like maybe a canvas. But where there might be quirks in the different browsers, and so trying to run inside of, say, Node.js only really gets you, uh, would only get you WebKit. And, and actually, Node.js doesn't actually support Canvas at all because that's actually part of WebKit. Uh, that's one thing that people don't actually recognize, is that the JavaScript language has nothing to do with the DOM. The DOM is a browser construct. It only exists in browsers. But when you run JavaScript, say, on a server, there is no DOM, which means you lose things like Canvas, you lose all kinds of other APIs. And so... Uh, we found that the most success actually comes from running inside of a real browser. So there is benefits from running like a headless Node.js that just runs tests yep. really fast, but there's, it's a very limited subset of which tests you'd really want to run in that. So you're basically running almost like a Selenium test, but it's, it fires up a browser, runs a whole bunch of stuff, returns you something, and then and then you deal with that output rather than necessarily saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, yeah, like something like Rhino or something like that so that, so that I can just run the JavaScript I'm looking at now and so, that the, so that you can actually capture browser quirks and all that sort of fun stuff as well. Yeah, that, that's how we run it here. Uh, the Angular project, uh, AngularJS is a framework I think we're going to talk about later. They actually do use uh, Jenkins or Hudson or whatever they're calling it these days. Uh, and they run uh, JS, J, they run JSTD through uh, Jenkins on their continuous build system, and it just has a set of continuously captured browsers. They, I think they have ten of them. They have a couple versions of uh, IE and Chrome and Safari and Firefox, and it just has them all captured. And when the continuous build system runs these tests, it runs the tests inside of JSTD. And since JSTD is a client-server system where you can just have the server running all the time. Uh, Jenkins submits the test data to the server, which streams it out to all the different browsers concurrently, and then just returns nice. with all your test data. Okay. That's very nice. Yeah. Very, very nice. So, interesting question for you. Um, so, say I'm building an app, and really, my only, my only JavaScript at the moment is sort of making a couple of buttons hide and show, or a couple of sections on the page hide and show, and, and maybe you know, making something pop up and scroll down, and, or do a modal window or stuff. Should I be writing unit tests for that, or is this specifically for more complex stuff where you start talking about you know, the feedback button, or Google Docs, or, or things like that? Where's, that? where's that sort of fit? Trying to unit test things that involve animations or interacting with the DOM, I found to be really hard, uh, particularly because the DOM is just really slow. And so it really cuts in. Uh, with JSTD, you can run maybe a thousand tests in like half a second. But as soon as you touch the DOM, you fall down to like maybe a hundred tests because the DOM is just so slow. And so 
I don't think there's a lot of value in testing these. Uh, in particular, this is stuff I think you'd want to test with Selenium. Because something like an animation or something like that, or hiding and showing, is better suited to testing uh, in a browser with Selenium, where you can be like, oh, I clicked on this button, did the button actually disappear? And because these tests take so long, you might even be better suited to just having much bigger tests. Like, click this button, drag some things around, like, test them all together. I think unit testing is more about uh, complex logic. And when you're just hiding and showing buttons or doing modal dialogues, presumably you're using somebody else's library, which has a test suite. Like, jQuery uh, has a, a big test suite. And so you don't really need to duplicate their tests. Uh, one of the things I said in my presentation is don't test the DOM. Uh, there's no... There's no reason to test the DOM because WebKit has uh, a huge test suite for the DOM already. And so when you're writing tests to make sure that the DOM works, you're essentially testing the 100,000 lines of C++ code that gets compiled into Chrome. And that's, that's not beneficial to you. It makes more sense to test your own code. That's fair enough. Fair enough. So when you're building apps, you know, maybe something a little bit more simple, and I think this is kind of the interesting thing that, that sort of stuck in my mind as well as trying to work out way to draw the line in the sand a bit. But would you, you'd still write that sort of separation of concerns where you've got sort of your business logic and, and your um, dumb manipulation separately because maybe you'd only actually have dumb manipulation depending on what it is that you're doing. Um, you'd still structure it that way, but maybe you've only got very simple unit tests or, or no unit tests for something that's just basically a hide and show button. Would, would you agree with that or am I off base there? Or I'd certainly start that way. I don't think that there's a big upfront cost I know when I was at CF Objective, I wrote the simple mock for the XHRs uh, in about an hour, and I probably support more features than any any like tiny application would need. And so I think that's something that you could do uh, right up front. Maybe just have a function that all your XHRs go through instead of calling the jQuery XHR library directly. And so you've just yep. wrapped up all of your XHRs there. Uh, maybe you do nothing except just call jQuery's XHR stuff, and that's fine. And I think you get a lot of value from making sure that you don't sprinkle the XHRs all over your code. And say, and so I think there is value of doing that up front. Uh, I think that you just don't go too far. So when you're building your tiny application, you know, wrap things in some functions, give yourself a little encapsulation, but you don't necessarily have to go the full mile and try to like mock everything out for tests and stuff if you're not going to do it right up front. Okay, so moving on from there, um, let's talk a little bit about JavaScript Test Driver. Do you, want to, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Maybe even we'll step into some Jasmine stuff as well. Sure. Uh, JS Test Driver was a project. It was started by the same team that actually uh, works on feedback uh, on our internal user interface. And they wanted, essentially, a faster way to test JavaScript code. And they'd found that running Selenium tests was too slow, but they wanted something, essentially, where you could refresh uh, the code in your editor. So every time I click Save, it should be able to run maybe a 1,000 tests in half a second. So essentially the time that it took me to save and like look down at the console. And so they wanted to do that, and they sat down and looked at existing tools and found there wasn't really anything that addressed this concern yet. And so they built this. Uh, it has an Eclipse plugin. And it, it's a pretty cool project. It's open source. It's on Google Code. It has a dedicated team of people that work on it here at Google. Uh, we use it a lot internally. And I, it's a pretty cool project because it doesn't necessarily depend on any extensions on the browser side. So something like WebDriver, uh, which is a system for essentially remote controlling the browser, requires an extension in every browser, or it falls back on some JavaScript Selenium stuff, which is a little flaky. 
while JSTD, on the other hand, uh, it just depends on basic browser features. So any modern browser you can capture with JSTD and run your tests. So when IE10 is released, you just capture uh, IE10 with JSTD, it streams your tests across, it runs all of them and brings them back, uh, which has been really great. And, and obviously JSTD, is it fairly similar to like say an X unit, you know, unit testing framework that people would be used to, or is it a different sort of structure or how does that, how does that work? It provides an API that's very similar to an X unit. Uh, you define a test case uh, with a test case constructor and you define a bunch of methods on it that start with the prefix test, uh, just like a J yep. unit, and it runs all of them. Uh, there's setup and teardown and there's callbacks. Uh, there's support for asynchronous tests. Also, because JavaScript has all this asynchronous stuff in it, uh, yep. if you want to go that way. Uh, so it's it's pretty familiar if you've ever used one of those libraries before. It has very similar APIs. The people that built it were people, um, testability people, who'd used XUnit. So the API is very similar. That's fair enough. I'm just looking at the documentation, actually, and it looks really, really interesting. And to be absolutely honest, I've never heard of it before, before today, basically. Yeah, it's not as well known as I think it probably should be. And I'm not sure why the reason is for that exactly. But I found it to be a really cool project. And I've talked to a lot of people in the Adobe community going to user groups that talked about uh, their big uh, Jenkins build server and all the Selenium tests that they run. And I was like, oh, well, if you have these JavaScript tests, you could probably run them a lot faster through JS test driver instead of trying to run them through uh, Selenium. And they were like, holy crap, like our Selenium tests take forever right now. And so this yep. has been really beneficial. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I know that pain very, very well. Um, does, uh, now, I'm actually just looking through it myself. JSTD, does it have um, stuff like mocking and, or, or pre-built mocks for things like you know, um, XHRs and things like that? Or um, is that something that comes with a separate library? Or how does that normally work with the whole mocking aspect? They don't actually provide any of these mocks. The AngularJS framework does provide mocks at the framework level. It would be an interesting project for someone to contribute mocks to JSTD, though. I think when they originally designed it, uh, they didn't think about uh, how to mock out the network. It was more like, let's encapsulate the network and some kind of function, and then maybe we'll mock it out. But I don't think they really took the story far enough, and so it wasn't okay. really baked in. And then later they added asynchronous testing to it, uh, which involves queues of callbacks, and that works fine. Yep. Uh, but they don't really provide the mocking. And I think that's something that we've learned recently within the past year, I guess, where it was like you get so much value in having predictability from your tests, where the asynchronous mm -hmm. is not really asynchronous anymore. Yep, yep, yep. That makes a lot of sense. I know, I know personally I've actually started mocking a, a whole lot more in my unit tests and really started to delve more into that stuff. And it's definitely changed the way probably I even write some of my unit tests and allow me to get a lot more granular about what I'm testing and how I'm testing it. Uh, I'm moving more probably towards what are truly more unit tests and less probably what were before integration tests where I was hooking a whole bunch of stuff together just to make sure it all worked. Um, and it's it's made it actually makes debugging issues a whole lot easier because you know end-to-end -end exactly what you should be getting. Yeah. It's, uh, it certainly makes it much easier when you have the predictability in your tests. And flaky tests, uh, at least here, just don't have a lot of value because you never really know whether they're failing because you messed up or because the tests just suck. So. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. So Jasmine's now, Jasmine, uh, having been to the talk that you've been to, I know exactly what it is, but is that a different testing framework or is it a complementary testing framework to JSTD? Talk to us a little bit about, about what Jasmine is and, and how that works. 
So Jesmine is a project from Pivotal Labs. They also create Pivotal Tracker, which is an agile tool for uh, tracking your project and a lot of other things. And it's a BDD framework for writing JavaScript tests. They looked at a bunch of other BDD frameworks when they built it, and they kind of cherry-picked all the ideas they thought were really great into one framework. Uh, it's then essentially all the BDD frameworks I've seen for JavaScript now model themselves on essentially what Jasmine ended up with, which is this conglomeration of what everybody else did. And hmm. it's, it's complementary. So it's not actually, it's no runner. It's just a JavaScript library. It's all written in JavaScript. You can run it however you want. And there's an adapter for JSTD, which wraps up that kind of XUnit API in this more BDD API. And what's really nice about that is it lets you write stories about your code. So instead of just saying, you know, test this something or other, you know, in the method name, you can say, like, or you can describe what you're actually testing in a string, which is really nice. But what's even better than that, which I found really awesome with Jasmine, uh, and I guess I'd never done BDD properly, I think. I kind of thought I did maybe, but I, I don't know if it was really BDD. Uh, is you can nest them. So you can have these things called describe blocks, where you describe some thing you're going to test in a string, and then you have these things called it, where you say it should something, 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 and that's a test. But you can nest the describes, and so you can essentially describe the structure of your application. So you should say, um, describe the profile page, and you could say, like, it should do this, it should do that, it should do this, but then you could have something nested under it, like, describe the chat list on the profile page, and then you could say, it should do this, it should do this. And I think that there's a lot of value in being able to have this. And then through a really simple regular expression, you can actually like nuke all the real code that's in the file and end up with just the strings. Or if your editor collapses, that's even nice too. And you can see essentially the story the developer built while they were building the application. So it's kind of like describing what the framework should do rather than describing or even like specifying what small parts of the uh, application does. So it's kind of a, a bit of a higher picture when you're doing BDD. Yeah, it's it's kind of like TDD, but it's more about writing stories. So you're still writing the same kinds of tests, but instead of thinking upfront, how do I write a test for this code? You start about thinking about how do I write a story about what I'm about to build. Yep, which makes sense in the agile process as well because it kind of matches straight up to that. Yeah. Well, that's pretty pretty interesting. Kai, you got any any further further comments or questions on that stuff? Unless, and then we can possibly move on. No, I find it actually super interesting, um, and it's definitely something I need to investigate a bit more because I really see the need for improving the way how yeah, we we code JavaScript basically at the moment, and that might be one option. I mean, the other thing I still think needs to be solved in some way is to structure your application in a way that it is, you know, that is properly separated by concerns. And that's something that, you know, JSTD or Jasmine wouldn't really solve. But, you know, like introducing a, I don't know, a model view controller framework like Backbone JS or something like that, mm -hmm. that has to probably go hand in hand with introducing like a unit testing framework for, for JavaScript code. So speaking of frameworks for JavaScript code, <laughs> lovely segue there. Uh, <laughs> Elliot, you're in, you're involved with a JavaScript framework uh, yourself. Uh, I am. The framework uh, I've mentioned it a couple times already is called Angular. Uh, the website is angularjs.org, and it's essentially. Uh, 
I don't know how to describe it besides saying that it's not just a framework. It's essentially three different pieces. It's a HTML compiler that runs client-side that works a little bit like the MXMLC Flex compiler, where it processes the whole DOM and it allows you to write your own tags and widgets and attributes, which is kind of nice. Uh, similar in spirit to Spry, but more sophisticated than that. And then uh, it's also an MVC framework that provides things like an ORM setup and there's dependency injection. And so, and then it provides a testing framework. So there's a scenario runner that runs kind of Selenium-style tests in all the browsers. And there's also a unit testing setup uh, with mocks. So that's one of the things we tried to address, uh, as you mentioned, Kai, was that uh, it's really beneficial if your testing framework is integrated directly into your framework. Yep, and it seems like as if you're trying to give people a complete solution. I like the you know the the tagline what HTML would have been had it been designed for web apps. That is actually that's the core of the issue that we're having basically. You know, HTML as it is is just some sort of a I don't know. It has to be bent to do the job that we wanted to do, really. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things the creator the, who started the framework, uh, Mishko Haveri, was uh, very passionate about, was that he'd, he'd worked with HTML and JavaScript, and then for a while he built Flex applications, and then he came back um, to HTML and JavaScript, and y you can just see these big holes, like things that just are like missing. Like There's yeah. no data binding, there's no things that just seem obvious in modern applications that just aren't there. And we tried to address all of those issues. That is very interesting because that's exactly what I always feel. I'm doing a lot of Flex development and I used to do Flash development before and moved away from JavaScript for quite a long time and got back into it maybe a year ago through doing more and more jQuery stuff. And there are so many things missing, as you said, you know, and the most obvious one is data binding. You want to have some sort of, you know, your curly braces and just bind UI elements to a model. And it's so painful to do that without any proper support for it. Yeah, and we've we've worked with some of the browser vendors. They uh, had a proposal out on trying to get this integrated. Um, that stuff is kind of slow moving, and I think Angular provides like a really nice approach to it. And we we've put a lot of time into it. We use it for the internal UI for feedback. There's also other projects at Google that are using it. Um, nothing external that I can think of right now. I know that they are working on things, and so it's proven to be really useful. And to a Flex developer. Uh, looking at the code, uh, you can see the value immediately because you can write custom widgets, you can wrap up your code into a widget. We have one like for the internal UI that's a date picker. And that seems really obvious. Like, of course, I should be able to have a date picker. But if you look at HTML, like even HTML5, the date picker is kind of rudimentary. Like, it doesn't do really what you want it to do. And so you're like, oh, well, I can write all this jQuery code that attaches things. But what you really want to do is you want to write date picker like it's a tag and you just want to have it work. And that's essentially the experience that we're trying to provide. It's almost like Cold Fusion custom tags. It is. Yeah. So is it possible, or what, is there any proven experience of tying together Angular with jQuery? Does that work nicely? Angular itself uses jQuery. Uh, Angular has inside of it a very tiny library called jqlite, which uh, implements a very tiny subset of jQuery. Uh, and it's, it's an extremely tiny subset of jQuery. And it's really only there to allow you to load Angular into essentially like a demo page and to play around with it. 
But if you're building a real application, as soon as you put jQuery into the same page, Angular swaps out its own jQuery library with the real jQuery, which has nice benefits. It makes everything faster. It makes everything work better. But all the callbacks inside of Angular that would return DOM, DOM elements also return jQuery objects. We use it internally for all of our interaction with the DOM. So uh, it's, it's complementary to jQuery. It's essentially a layer on top of jQuery if okay. it's available. Very, very cool. Yeah. I also see that it does um, what you I'm just looking through the, the front page. Links will be in the show notes um, where it says uh, MVC with dependency injection. So there's also a dependency injection framework also built into it. Uh, yes, there is. That was one of the things that we found uh, when we were uh, working with it is that uh, trying to write tests uh, and testable code without some kind of dependency injection gets pretty hairy because you end up with these weird kind of setup functions where you're creating lots of objects and passing them around. And if you've ever worked with something like Cold Spring or Spring or Juice before, um, it, it changes your mind. And then you try to go back and work with these and you're like, oh, this kind of sucks. And we, we noticed that right away. Like it was just really hard to test uh, without some kind of dependency injection. And so yep. we implemented um, a dependency injection where you can use named arguments or you can specify a list of services. And then you can mock out the services in your tests. Or you can even override the built-in services in Angular if you want to provide your own behavior, which is really nice. nice. Like if you don't like our XHR library, you can just replace it with your own. Okay. Very, very, very nice. Very, very nice. Um, I think, uh, actually, if you go to the uh, AngularJS page, you'll actually see there is, there is a testimonial there from Ray Camden. Uh, I've just seen that actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is very cool. It's always fun when you you wander into interesting places and you see people's names that you recognize. Um, I think I think Ray pretty much re- referred to it as a spry on steroids, or possibly some other sort of performance enhancing drug that I can't remember the name of. Um, <laughs> so he pretty seemed pretty excited. Um, now Angular JS, obviously, you know, again. This is this is where that where do you you put this in to use it? Is this something where you know if you've got two or three page animations or something like that, you'd be looking to use Angular? Or again, is this where you're looking at more complex stuff? Or where do you draw the line on where do you where do you generally apply this? So I've found Angular works really well for everything from small applications to big applications. We haven't really crossed the really big application line yet, and. As we do, uh, get, as feedback gets bigger, we learn a lot. And so Angular has actually evolved. If you look at the old version of Angular uh, back through the Git repository and what it is now, it's radically different. And what it'll be in a month as we roll out more changes uh, will be even more different, like if you look at the current branches on GitHub. And so it's evolved a lot, but it also scales down really well. And I've found that it's really hard to build... Uh, it's really designed for CRUD-style applications, which addresses most applications. Like even Twitter, really, if you think about it, is CRUD. Like mm-hmm. it's a list, and there's another list, and you click on things. Like there's no nothing too crazy there. There's yeah. no drag and drop, really. And so it, it's pretty rudimentary. And so you can build things like that really nice. And I found when I'm building static pages now to just test out some CSS, it's really hard to not do it with Angular. Because I'm like, oh, well, I'm building a tiny Twitter, and I want to throw in some data and see what it looks like. And it's like, oh, well, if I use Angular, I can put ng-repeat on something, and then I can just throw in some test data, and it'll fill in the whole page. And Angular is nice and lightweight, and that's, that's, I found that really beneficial uh, trying to design things or design yep. a new UI. Um, I think there's a lot of value like if you're trying to show a client like what a UI might look like, because you can provide essentially a really quick mashup with Angular of a list that you click on and it deletes some items or does some things. Like Maybe there's no real logic in there. Uh, and it's really basic to to sit down and just crank it out with Angular. 
So here's an interesting question for you, because obviously, okay, so if you're using something like Angular and you, you set up sort of data binding and you can, you can do stuff like, you know, repeat a certain number of data placeholders and, and do all that sort of stuff. Obviously then, so the way the request would work is you, you're drawing a page and then obviously I'm figuring there's some sort of XHR request that goes off to the network, pulls in some data, pulls, shows that on the page and then, and then repeats that out. Would that be, that would be right? Yeah, yes. Now, the interesting question I have is, when would you go, you know what, I'm going to do that server-side first? Or would you keep it all client-side? Or would you mix and match? How would you, how would you, normally, sort of, um, how would you normally take care of that? Because obviously the initial thought is, oh, I'll just, I'll just push that all out server-side because I've got, I've got access to the server if I'm running like Confusion or something like that. Would you normally look at it that way? Or would you just do it you know, sort of in two requests so that it's the page and then the, the network request? Or how does, that, how does that normally work? We've found that for most applications, serving up uh, essentially a tiny template serves the application really well. And so, uh, not to knock ColdFusion, but ColdFusion's templating engine is really nice. But when you're building something like Ajaxy, the first page load actually becomes really important. And it, it's actually surprising, I found from looking at the way users use things, is that they want to see the page show up instantly, even if it takes a while for the information to show up, which is kind of counterintuitive, uh, at least in my mind. And so we've found that it's almost better to serve up a static HTML file or relatively static. Like often there's things that you do want to actually be composited into the page. But serve up relatively static and then do another request to pull in all the data. And over a mobile connection, this can actually make a decent difference because you get up uh, the template really, really fast and then you can show some kind of loading and progress bar and then stream in the information in the background. Okay. Okay, fair enough. That all sounds good. I'm just looking. I'm just looking at the um, example on the Angular front page. There is some sort of a source example for a little mini application, like a to-do, um, to-do application. Do you guys see that by any chance? Yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yes. Maybe can we spend like five minutes and just talk through this example because I think this is really interesting, and I have the feeling I'm, you know, I'm. From reading it, I'm getting what's happening, but it would be really cool if you could maybe talk us through it, Elliot, and then, you know, listeners can actually go to the page and can have a look at the code and maybe follow what you're explaining in five minutes or so to give people an idea of how the framework works. Sure. So the example uh, at the top, uh, we just include the Angular framework in a JavaScript tag. Uh, and you'll notice before that, there's an XML namespace. This is actually a lie. It's to convince Internet Explorer to let you style the Angular elements. Uh, so you only need that for Internet Explorer. It's not really XML. And then there's a special attribute, ng-autobind, uh, which you add to the script tag. And what this does is it tells Angular to essentially compile the whole page. So there's more granularity, but it's really just something you can throw on there. Okay. So then the real meat of the application is those, the div that you see at the top. And so you define the controller that you want to manage this section of the page. So Angular is based around a concept of scopes, which is really just like scopes in ColdFusion if you think about like the nested lexical scopes that you have. So think about almost like a CF loop. So you have the variable scope, which is Angular's root scope, which is up at the top. And then you have these nested scopes. For instance, in a query loop in ColdFusion, you have these variables that are accessible but they're really just part of the query. Yep. And so you tell Angular that I want this section of the page managed by the to-do controller. And then inside oh, yeah. of there, you'll see that we have a click handler and we have some curly bracket bindings um, and we have some inputs with names on them. 
And so that's you know, there's nothing too complicated there, but you'll notice we never really reference the controller there because we've just said this section of the page is managed. And this is one of the things we think uh, really benefits building applications and that uh, HTML is missing. And that's the on-click in an HTML uh, on an HTML element actually executes on the window. It, it actually executes on the element, but it pulls in the window and everything too. It's, it's a little weird. But it doesn't give you any context. So you have all these kind yep. of like global listeners everywhere. And so we said, well, you should have a scope. And so you say this is the controller. And so the code there at the top is essentially just saying this is managed and these are the functions. And then down at the bottom, there's the JavaScript controller. And so just to make things simpler with callback functions, we specify that the scope is the current this right there. And then we store some data into to-dos and remaining. And if you look up at the HTML, you'll see we have an ng repeat that loops over uh, the to-dos and the remaining um, to show you uh, the information that's in the page. So we, we loop through the to-dos and the remaining is essentially just a number. And then we have methods, uh, add to-do, uh, recalculate, uh, remove done. And all these do is actually manipulate the data. They have no references to the DOM. It does nothing to do with the HTML. And you'll notice that the input box has a name on it, which is to-do done. Now, this magically actually modifies the to-do object with the done property on that controller. But there's no references to the fact that it's actually an input box on your controller, which is nice, because it means we can swap it out for a text area or anything we want, and the bindings just automatically link up. And so nice. each of the functions you see there is just called when you click the action or you modify the text box. And Angular has a lifecycle process where it sees a user action and it runs your code and then it mutates the DOM and then it synchronizes everything together. And so you don't have to worry about it at all. And so really, yeah, you, I, yeah, I can actually see it's um, mm -hmm. like so looking at the to-do controller, you really, there's no DOM there. So being able to unit test something like that is actually a lot easier because you, you just, it's not, it's not you know, hooked up to anything. There's no coupling. So that's actually pretty cool just straight away. Yeah, there's, it's really nice. And even for a small application, like you could see, you could write like three unit tests in like five minutes for this, like right up front, and then know that your like even to do, tiny to-do application is reliable. See, and that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly what I meant earlier. Before you can properly unit test JavaScript code, you need to give your application a different structure with, you know, pure jQuery as you write it intuitively, it's not going to work. That's exactly what, what I'm, you know, really looking for where you have a controller and a model with your data and then functions working on the data totally independently of what's happening on the page itself in the DOM basically. That is really nice. Yeah, that's that's really what we found to be great. And then Angular provides a system for creating custom widgets. So you'll see in the example here uh, we have special attributes and these are just provided by Angular by default. But you can actually define custom elements just like custom tags, like a date picker. And then you can write that code where the date picker just takes the data. So it takes maybe a string and whatever it does and exports the data to Angular. And then your application would declare essentially a date picker with a name which generates a binding, which is really nice. Because then your application and the date picker and the HTML that uses it are actually all separated from each other. Yeah, very, very nice. Wonderful awesome. stuff. It's actually, you know, I find it that nice that I'm totally 
sort of keen on trying it right away, actually. <laughs> I've been trying to think of an app that I want to write with Angular for ages, and I haven't thought of one yet. You could yeah, write a ColdSpring very... visualizer, something that visualizes your dependencies in ColdSpring. That would be cool. Sure. That would be cool. Oh, and then I could make it a builder plugin, and it would be really neat. Mm-hmm. There you go. There we go. I'll get right on that. <laughs> cool. Yeah, thanks a lot for that explanation. I think that will help people a lot to, you know, right away look at that code and understand what it's doing and why it's doing that and how, how it could be you know, helpful for them and for, the, for their development. I just worked out what I can use do with Angular. But I won't tell you yet because it's an idea I've been brewing on for a while. That's right. Is it something they're going to include in Cloud Fusion 10? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Okay. So cool. should we move on to our uh, events and jobs and all that jazz? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. Um, we got a, we got a few events coming up in the ANZ region. Uh, the closest one is Edge of the Web in Perth, Australia, which I'm bringing up the website for now. Um, bringing a world-class web conference experience to Western Australia. Uh, you ever been to Edge of the Web, Kai? I have. Um, in 2008, I think. Okay, good conference. Yeah, stuff. I actually have no was, idea about any of it. It was definitely a very, very interesting conference in that year. They had a lot of people. I mean, it's a, it's a conference that focuses on a lot of web standards, and they had yep. a lot of really good and well-known people from that community coming to Perth and doing presentations. So it was was a really good trip. I think yeah, they they me. skipped last year. There was no Edge of the Web in 2010, if I'm correct. Um, but it's good to see them back now, you know, and doing another round. Yeah, seeing some some good stuff. Uh, Lisa Herod's a name I know uh, for usability. She's definitely been there at WebDU a few times. Um, oh, what else have we got on here? Yeah, giving your app some spine with Backbone.js looks interesting. Yeah, that's Lockland's uh, session, isn't it? Yeah. yeah um, app Engine. I've seen uh, I've seen this talk actually at WebDU. That was really good. Yeah. Really good. All right, cool. So it looks like a looks like a good conference. Again, uh, links in the in the show notes, but that looks like it's it's going to be good. Um, do some blatant self promotion. Uh, CF Objective ANZ recently announced its dates. Uh, we're back again in 2011. Elliot, I can't convince you to come down and talk, can I? I'd love to come down and talk. I'll have to see if I can swing a visit to maybe the Google office in Australia. I was actually going to say that. You know, you could maybe maybe upskill those guys on the JavaScript stuff you're doing and, you know, make it a nice business trip. <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah, because so those, uh, Mark finally came over here, I'll go over there too. <laughs> I've been coming to the United States for how many years now? <laughs> but I was never there. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, the dates have been announced November 17th and 18th, 2011 uh, for CF Objective ANZ. With, with, uh, at this stage, it looks like we'll also be having pre-conference workshops for the first day, uh, just like we did last year as well. Um, but we've also said if you look at the website now, you'll see that it's CF Objective ANZ plus Flex. Uh, so we're doing a completely separate Flex track. You know, I won, finally. Uh, as, uh, yeah, just took me three years to get there. 
yeah, exactly. Kai bugged me and bugged me and bugged me to do a flex track, and and I finally relented, just to shut him up. Um, <laughs> so we're running it this year. Should be should be interesting. I think. Um, so it's the same two cold fusion con- uh, two cold fusion tracks of sort of enterprise cold fusion goodness, but uh, we're going to run a, a flex track as well with some good stuff in that as well. So should be uh, should be great. And I think um, I don't really think you're going to be able to find that sort of combined content pretty much anywhere in this region. So pretty no, and, excited. And I think it's important to stress the fact that we are not, you know, taking away content from the cold fusion tracks. You know, we, no, we not at all. It's exactly the same amount of cold fusion content. We're just adding. A third track to it, basically, with even yep. more stuff for people. So, should be really good. We're going to um, start getting into call for speakers and things like that, you know, in the next, I don't know, month or so, or next few weeks at the very least. Yep. And uh, yeah, it should be really, really good. We've got some dates lined up to start releasing some more information, but very and excited about this year's conference. You probably also want to mention that um, CF Objective ANZ plus Flex is still looking for more sponsorship, obviously. Of course, always looking for more sponsorship. I've, I've uh, sponsorship heard guide. that there is a sponsorship guide available. <laughs> <laughs> there is a sponsorship guide available. Well, well played, Kai. Um, so if you go to the sponsorship guide on the website, you can download the uh, PDF. Um, we run a little bit of a, an interesting thing where basically we just put prices against the benefits you may want as a sponsor. And uh, so you can pick and choose exactly what you want that's going to benefit you the most. And then basically the tier is dependent on, on how much money you spend and what benefits you get from there. So the idea is that sponsors basically get exactly what they're looking for and, and everyone doesn't end up with these extra things that they don't end up using, which is not generally what you want. So yeah, lots of good stuff. Coming up, I think you uh, you had a job that you wanted to mention. Yeah, that just um, came over the New Zealand Cold Fusion jobs list the other day. Actually, the NZ Herald, which is um, one of New Zealand's largest newspapers up in Auckland, are looking for a Cold Fusion developer, basically. Um, and we'll probably put the link to the mailing list post into the blog post, I guess. But basically yeah. what they're looking for is um, Cold Fusion developer, strong proficiency, Cold Fusion 7 or later, which would be preferred, uh, could be replaced by a strong proficiency in PHP 5, i.e. object-oriented PHP, also knowledge in HTML, JavaScript, jQuery, CSS, um, a LAMP environment, etc., etc. Basically a web developer, and if, you know, if there are good Cold Fusion skills, they would even love that more because their their application platform is built on Cold Fusion. Cool. Well, that all sounds really, really good. Um, Elliot, where can people reach you if they want to bug you about stuff and ask you questions and do all that sort of annoying things? Uh, they can reach me at my personal email. It's my first initial and my last name at gmail.com, uh, eSprain. Uh, you can find it on my website, which is elliotsbrain.com. Uh, if you look at my resume, it's a little hard to find. Or you can post on my blog. Um, or you could ask uh, Mark, who also knows my email. <laughs> <send it to. laughs> uh, you have a Twitter account as well? I do. Uh, my Twitter account is elliotz, or elliotz, if you're from Down Under. Down Under. Now, actually, while we've got, since, since you're here, is there a short link for Google Plus to people's profiles? Or do, people, do you just have to look for them on... I've never actually looked at that. To my knowledge, there's not a short link. You're just supposed to look for them. Okay. But if you Google search, you can find me. If you search my name, uh, the results that show up, uh, the first one is my website, uh, the second one is my resume, and the third one is my Google Plus account. 
So is that a benefit of working for Google that you get your own name sort of search engine optimized automatically? No, I was all over Google before I uh, started here. Uh, speaking at ColdFusion conferences uh, gets you all over the place. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Okay, um, Kai, you want to run through your usual bits of contact information? Yeah, usual bits of contact, info- contact information. Agent K on Twitter, uh, blockinblack.de, or Kai at ventigo-creative-coenz. Wonderful. Uh, you can reach me at mark.mandel at gmail.com. I am neurotic on Twitter. That is actually my handle. I'm not just crazy. And uh, you can also find me on Google Plus as well. But uh, thank you very much, I think, Elliot, for joining us on another episode of Two Developers Down Under. Um, it was a bit of a, a long phone call from far, far away, but it was definitely, I think, well worth it. I well, totally I agree. That was really, really interesting. Thanks a lot for your time, Elliot. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Alrighty, so when we are back in about two weeks, probably. Probably. Alrighty, then thanks to everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye. Have a good day.